WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio proudly presents the Marian Hour with Father Dwight Campbell, spiritual advisor to WSFI and pastor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and St. Therese in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Father Campbell back for another segment of the Marian Hour. And I'd like you to join me as we start this uh, Marian Hour today, December 9th, uh, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. And <coughs> we'll ask for the invocation of, of St. Juan Diego. Pray for us, and uh, hopefully soon to be blessed Fulton Sheen. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, when I walked into the office today, Angela Tomlinson, our program manager, reminded me that today is the anniversary of WSFI. Uh, it is the feast day of, of Fulton Sheen. You know, his cause is was ready for beatification. It was held up, unfortunately, and uh, as I asked Angela and a couple of other um, helpers who are up here today, I'm going to ask our radio audience to please pray for Monsignor Richard Sosman. He was the priest from the Peoria Diocese who did most of the work promoting the cause of Fulton Sheen. And just yesterday he, he died of uh, the coronavirus. Uh, he had complications. He was on a respirator for uh, over a month, I believe, and I just learned of his death today. I think it was yesterday he died. It wasn't, I, if I recall, I, I got the notice on it. I was in the seminary with him. Uh, he was a, a year behind me, a very good holy priest who worked in Rome for many years uh, <coughs> for, I think, the congregation of clergy, if I recall. He worked for that congregation in Rome, and he was pastor of a couple of parishes in LaSalle, Illinois, and contracted the COVID, and after uh, struggling on a respirator for a month, he passed away. So please keep him in your prayers. Uh, hopefully he'll, if he isn't yet in the kingdom, he'll be up there with, with Fulton Sheen, whose cause he promoted, okay? Well, <coughs> uh, today I mentioned is is uh, also the feast of Juan Diego, the saint to whom the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared, Our, Our Lady of Guadalupe, in 1531. An interesting fact about Juan Diego is uh, he was baptized in 1524. He'd already been married, and <coughs> uh, his, his wife, uh, Maria Lucia, and he, they learned about, through the preaching of Franciscans, I believe, uh, the value of, of continence. 
And they took a vow after their baptism that they would be continent. They would live together as brother and sister as a sacrifice. And <coughs> before the apparitions began, Maria Lucia, Juan Diego's wife, died. Um, Our Lady appeared to him in, in 1531 and appeared in a succession of days asking or telling him, actually, to go to the bishop, Zumarga, and tell him she wanted a chapel built on uh, Tapayak Hill is where she appeared to him. He went to the bishop. He was such a humble man. I think that's why Our Lady chose him. Uh, he, he said, well, please choose someone else of more importance. I'm just a lowly, you know, he was uh, almost like a peasant. He said, I'm not really qualified to carry this message. And Our Lady said, no, I want you to go. So he went to the bishop. The bishop says, well, okay, you know, he wasn't too um, um, willing to believe Juan Diego's story. And he, he wanted proof, basically. Well, uh, to make a long story short, December 12th, Juan Diego is, is walking to get a priest because his uncle was near death. He wanted to get a priest to, to um, give him the last sacraments. And <coughs> he was actually walking around the other side of Tapayak Hill. Our Lady appeared to him and ordered him to go up and, and pick up roses, Castilian roses, which were out of season. It was December 12th, even in Mexico City. He picked up these roses. He put them in his tilma. He thought, he thought that this was the sign the Archbishop wanted because the Archbishop said, give me a sign that Our Lady is appearing. Well, he knocks on the Archbishop's door once again, and he comes in, and um, he says, well, Archbishop, or, uh, you know, I, I have the sign you asked for. And he opens up his tilma. The flowers fall to the ground, the, to the floor, and the Archbishop falls to his knees because he sees this beautiful image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is truly, truly miraculous because... Um, um, uh, Angela, you're listening, aren't you? Yes, I'm listening. Yes, yes yeah, it's truly miraculous. Do, do you know something about that that image? It's it's Our Lady. She's she's in front of the sun, which had great significance to the to the, uh, the native uh, Indians there because this indicated that she was greater than their sun god, but she wasn't a goddess to be worshipped. You know how we can tell that from the image. Her her waistband. No, that's oh. actually showing her pregnancy. Her pregnancy. Uh, she's she's got her hands folded, uh. see, with her head down, which means she's she is praying to someone greater than herself. <coughs> On her neck, she had a a little like a brooch with a cross, which was significant. She's the band around her waist. She's wearing uh, indicates that she was with child and you can see that in the image if you if you look closely it looks like her stomach is protruding slightly and um, the Native Americans identified with her because her skin is is not white like a Caucasian but it's more like the Native Americans uh, to whom the image was shown and <coughs> that image was shown throughout Mexico. I think it was about 
oh, in 15 years, 9 million conversions took place. Mm. A tremendous amount of conversions because of that image. And, <coughs> you know, she's standing in front of the sun and she's got her, she's standing over the crescent of the moon as well. So that reminds us of the scripture, Revelation 12, w verse 1, the woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now she didn't have a, <coughs> a crown of 12 stars on her, on her head in the image on the tilma, but on, on the garment that she's wearing, her mantle, it's blue, and there are stars on the mantle which reflect the image of the night sky on that specific day, December 12, 1531. Wow. It's the constellation of, of the heavens which is which appears on her blue mantle. So, um, and, and you know, the tilma itself is miraculous because it was made out of a kind of a burlap-like material. It should have disintegrated in about 20 years and it's, it's been <laughs> uh, preserved perfectly for, for, you know, five centuries and um, also they do not know how the image is made on there it's it's into the fibers they they're just not sure how it was uh, how it appeared they, they can't describe it isn't that something about her eyes too oh yes I'm glad I was going to talk about her eyes ah her eyes reflect like like human eyes in fact they've blown up the eyes and and they can identify in the room Juan Diego, the bishop, and a couple of other people reflecting in her eyes. And each eye is reflecting these individuals at a different angle because you have two eyes. So it's as if the eyes are alive uh, or, or were alive when, when, they, uh, when this image was shown to, to the, uh, the archbishop. So that controverts the theory that it was painted. It really does because you. How no could they paint the eye? Right, no one could the paint beautiful. the eyes like this. No one, no one could have done this. And this was only discovered, uh, you know, s several decades ago when they began blowing up the eyes and and really um, uh, trying to identify the individuals. You can identify uh, Juan Diego. He's wearing a, a, a hat like the, the like the the peasants wore back then. The the, arch, the archbishop you can identify and some others in the room so it is really a, a miraculous image and you know that feast day is coming up on December 12th just three days from today is is the great feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe it is the most visited shrine of Our Lady in the world and uh, I, I was there um, back in the late 1980s I was in the seminary studying uh, Spanish in in Mexico. I was I lived there for a couple of months, and uh, <coughs> and I visited the the cathedral where the image is now placed uh, a number of times. And you know, there's a huge square in front of the cathedral, and the tradition is that people walk, especially the women. They're the more pious ones. They walk on their knees wow. across maybe a quarter of a mile wow. uh, on their knees in humility and right now in these days preceding December 12th many of, of the Mexicans are, are making a pilgrimage sometimes from, from
from many miles away walking some of them have been walking maybe for for many days or even a week now and are going to arrive at the shrine just to make that pilgrimage to Our Lady of Guadalupe and she is the patroness of the America she's been declared that and she's a pro-life um, patroness as well because she helped to stamp out the demonic religion of the Aztecs you know the Aztecs were um, were they would make war on <laughs> on neighboring tribes and then take the victims and then their their priests would take them atop of uh, these these mounds which were like little pyramids their their altars you could say slice them open you know take out their their uh, their organs you know uh, drench themselves in blood it was really demonic and it's one of the reasons why Cortez, uh, the conquistador, when he uh, was able to defeat Montezuma, who was the king at the time, he was able to engage the other tribes because they, they didn't like being carried away and made victims uh, to be put to death by the Aztecs. So it's really a fascinating story. And how did Our Lady of Guadalupe change? Well, I guess we're coming up to a break, Father, but how did Our Lady of Guadalupe change that, change that human sacrifice? Well, <coughs> you know, through the through the proclamation of the gospel, which uh, the natives there accepted, uh, the Franciscans tell us that the image would be carried into towns, and people would just come, you know, rushing up and and almost begging for baptism. So that human sacrifice, which was really demonic, was replaced by belief in the true sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and this is what Mary you know helped to promote her image mm -hmm. so and you uh, know father I was going to say we did a show uh, I'm trying to air it on Saturday from someone from Rockford the pro-life group there and he said they brought that image of the Tilma to the abortion clinic and within a week it closed and they said the image had the heartbeat of a baby Yes, I, I heard that story. You've heard Beautiful. that story? Yes. Here you go. Yes. So you listen to Father Dwight Campbell. It's the Marian Hour, 2 o'clock, and we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Sister Marie Julie. I've been a Sister of Charity for 50 wonderful years. It's by the grace of God that I'm a sister, and I often listen to Catholic Radio. And I, I feel that it feeds the hunger of the world. There's so many people who are longing for God, yearning for Him, don't realize where the emptiness comes from or where it's going. And Catholic Radio can help to meet that need. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at WSFIRadio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated.
The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. second segment of this Marian Hour today, December 9th, the feast day of St. Juan Diego, to whom Our Lady appeared in 1531 and left the beautiful image of herself on his tilma. That tilma, I was talking about that a little bit. Our hope. Yes, the, um, this is Father Dwight Campbell, back for another segment of the Marian Hour. And the <coughs> the feast day today is December 9th. It is the feast of St. Juan Diego, to whom Our Lady appeared in 1531. I spoke a little bit about that in the, the last segment. I'll just finish up with that right now. Um, you know, he was canonized a saint by St. John Paul II, who was then himself, but in the year 2002, and the tilma, we were talking about how it is a miraculous image and um, made of a material, a burlap-type material that should have disintegrated in, in maybe 20, 30 years, and it's been around for over 500. They don't know how the image appears on there. In the eyes of the image, they blow them up. It, it uh, reflected... Mary's eyes and that image of Our Lady of Guadalupe reflected the people in the room on the day Juan Diego showed Archbishop Zumarraga the, the image on the tilma. And this couldn't have been painted. Uh, also, I wanted to mention the, the Freemasons in the 1920s, they placed a bomb right beneath the tilma. And this bomb went off it, it uh, disfigured the altar, this, this metal, um, uh, I, I think there was a metal altar beneath, or a metal structure, but the image remained un, unharmed. And it is there today for everyone to see. You can go to Mexico City, go to the cathedral, and behold this miraculous image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, well, <coughs> Today, December 9th, the Feast of St. Juan Diego, follows upon yesterday's solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. Our Lady was conceived without sin. I'd like to talk uh, for the rest of this Marian hour about Mary and her Immaculate Conception. It was proclaimed a dogma by Pope Blessed Pius IX in 1854. Uh, just to explain what that means. Okay. Uh, I'm going to talk about dog, dogmas, but I'll start out talking about doctrines. Okay. 
a doctrine of the church is any truth taught by the church that uh, the faithful must accept. You could say it's just an official teaching of the church. The church authority teaches that it is to be believed. And that's true with all dogma, all, all doctrines. Now, dogmas are doctrines which the church proposes for belief as formally revealed by God. That is to believe by all the faithful as part of divine revelation. Formally revealed truths promulgated as such by the church. And so what does this mean? Well, every, this means that every dogma is a doctrine, but every doctrine isn't a dogma. That is, not every doctrine has been formally proposed, set forth by the church for belief by the faithful as formally defined and necessary for salvation. Now, a dogma can be, can be formally defined either by a, a, um, an ecumenical council. For example, the, the Council of Nicaea defined the dogma of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Uh, that's why we profess in the creed, the creed put together at that council of Nicaea in 325, that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten eternally, not made, he's not created, consubstantial, in other words, one in substance or being with the Father. He's God just as the Father is God. The Father begets him, the Son is begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So, um, a dogma can be proclaimed formally at a council, and also by, by the Pope making a pronouncement ex cathedra in an extraordinary way. That's, you know, that's what I'm talking about here, either, either at a church council or the, the Pope himself, ex cathedra. Cathedra means is, is chair. And the Pope can proclaim a dogma from the chair of Peter, saying, I'm, I'm eliminating all doubt on a matter. All the faithful must believe this. This is formally revealed by God, and it, this is uh, required to be adhered to as formally revealed by God by the faithful. Now, the Pope does, hasn't <laughs> uh, exercised that authority ex cathedra to proclaim dogmas but a handful of times in the history of the church. The Immaculate Conception, 1854, was one of those times. Can you think of another one, Angela, on a Marian dogma? The Queenship of Mary? Am I even close? Well, you are close in time. <laughs> but it's, it's generous. It's, it's, it wasn't the Queenship of Mary. That was an encyclical of, of 1956 by Pius XII. But it was Pius XII, six years before then, he proclaimed the fourth dogma in regard to Mary. Mm -hmm. And give you a hint. The Assumption. The Assumption, there yes. There you go. Okay, he formally defined Mary's Assumption on November 1st, 1950. And uh, he did that to, again, clear up any doubt on this matter. And 
as with the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, uh, the Pope didn't wake up one morning and, and decide, oh, I'll just define a dogma. It might be, I feel like defining something today. <laughs> with, with both of these Marian dogmas, the Immaculate Conception by Pius the Ninth, 1854, the Assumption of Mary into Heaven, 1950. What the Pope did first, in, in both instances, was survey the bishops of the world. He sent out, you know, uh, basically a letter asking the bishops, do you and do your people believe in this truth, either the Immaculate Conception or the Assumption? And the bishops in both cases, they responded overwhelmingly, yes, our people believe this. So, um, the Pope, in both of these instances, you know, felt to be on, on firm ground, you could say, uh, especially with the faithful around the world professing belief in this, attested to by the bishops of the world. And so these were defined as, as dogmas. And, uh, well, uh, with these dogmas, we, we don't have anything explicit in the scriptures revealing them. For example, you can read through the whole of the Bible and you will not find the words immaculate conception there, nor do you find assumption. Uh, it's there implicitly. It's, it's there uh, not explicitly. Actually, you could say the same thing about um, you know, three persons in one God. The, our belief in the Trinity, read through the scriptures, the whole Bible, never in anywhere in the scriptures do you find this phrase, three persons in one God. In fact, you don't find the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being referred to as persons. This comes from the tradition of the church, the church's teaching. And this is the same with the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. But I'll, I'll be concentrating right now on, on the Immaculate Conception, Mary's Immaculate Conception. The, the Pope, Pius IX, in his Apostolic Constitution of, of 1854, defining the Immaculate Conception, said that this was a truth that was held by the Church you know, throughout its whole history. And he was simply officially confirming belief in this truth with the definition proclaiming it a dogma in 1854. And here are his words, and, and this, is, this is an example, what I'm about to read to you, of how we know that it's a dogma, okay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Pope, he uses specific language in order to communicate to people that, okay, all doubt is resolved, you have to believe this. And here are his words defining the dogma. I quote, we declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first moment of her conception, 
by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of, or of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed and firmly believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. So what he's saying there is this was already a doctrine. Okay. It was already something believed, but now he is making it formally a dogma of the faith. By those words we declare, pronounce, define. He's, we de the Pope defines dogmas. He's speaking ex cathedra here okay, from the chair of Peter. But this is a doctrine revealed by God. And how did he reveal this? How did God reveal the Immaculate Conception? As I said, it's, you don't read these words in the scriptures. There's no account of Mary's being conceived without sin. So where does this come from? Well, um, I'm going to talk about the historical development of this doctrine, which became a dogma. Now, when we talk about doctrine developing, okay, what that means is that our understanding of these truths revealed by God become more clear and uh, more understandable, you can say. And the terminology becomes more refined so that there's a, a common terminology to, to express these beliefs like immaculate conception. That was, that's, that's, that itself is a term that, that is a result of the development of doctrine. And so, uh, as I said, Pius IX, in his, his definition, and his definition, uh, what I read for you just a few minutes ago, those, those few lines, that's actually the definition, but that wasn't the whole apostolic constitution. The whole apostolic constitution, you can look it up on the internet, just plug in uh, dogma, immaculate conception, Pius IX, and you'll be able to read this. Okay, it's uh, not an extremely long document. It's, you know, you could, you could get through it in about 15 minutes. But the lines I read for, for you just a few minutes ago, we declare, pronounce, defined, that this doctrine must be believed, okay, various preserved from sin. Well, this is, this is actually the definition within this document. And Pius IX said that this, the Church has ever held this doctrine as divinely revealed concerning the original innocence of the August Virgin, that is, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay. The original innocence, now what does that mean? That, that she was, from the first moment of her conception, never stained with original sin. Now, this doctrine was taught by the early church writers, but not with the clarity of language with which the church later speaks of this. In fact, with the early writers, they speak of Mary's sinlessness, of her purity, but it's not clear that, that they intend their words to mean from her conception. So that was kind of left 
open in, in the words of many of these early writers. I'll just, I'll give you some examples here. St. Justin Martyr, who died in 165, Tertullian, who died in 200, Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus, who died in about 200, uh, compared the lack of faith and disobedience and the stain of sin in Eve with the faith, the obedience, and unstained purity of Mary. She's the new Eve. So we see in these writers, especially talking about the unstained purity of Mary, okay, as the new Eve, well, this is the beginnings of the articulation, you could say, of belief in Mary's immaculate conception. But here we, we don't even, we don't have language of these authors indicating that this is from Mary's conception. And, however, but this actually was, was what they were believing, but they didn't express it so clearly. Uh, there's a Father Hafner who, who has a book on Mary. He's an excellent scholar from, uh, from England. In fact, he just wrote a great book on, on Mariology that's been published, translated into English. And he points out that in, in apocryphal writings, me meaning early writings, you know, they were of a spiritual nature, but they weren't inspired by God. They weren't made part of the canon of scripture, okay, <coughs> the official list of writings. But we have writings before 100 AD. I'll give you the names of a couple of them. One is called The Ascension of Isaiah. Another is called The Odes of Solomon, where Mary's sinlessness was linked with her giving birth as a virgin without pain. Okay. So we can see even earlier than these saints I just mentioned, you know, these writings speaking about Mary's sinlessness. And before terms like original sin, see original sin wasn't, wasn't used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, immaculate conception, that term was not used in the early centuries of the church. However, these early writers, the, pat the patristic writers we call them, the fathers, used language which implied these doctrines to describe the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now here's another example. Have you ever heard, Angela, of a fellow named Hippolytus? Yes. Okay. He died at about 250. Now he compared, I've quoted him before, so you maybe you... You're making sure I was paying attention at past shows. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. He compared Mary to the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, yeah. See, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained those Ten Commandments, the two stone tablets, Moses' staff, or Aaron's staff, and some of the showbread, but principally the, the Ten Commandments, okay? It was made of the finest wood, acacia wood, and inlaid and overlaid with gold because it carried the Word of God written on the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, okay? And here's what Hippolytus said. The Lord, Jesus Christ, was without sin, made of imperishable wood as regards his humanity, 
where what does he mean imperishable wood meaning Mary okay he took his humanity from Mary so Jesus without sin made of imperishable wood as regards his humanity drawing it from Mary that is he says of the virgin this imperishable wood and the Holy Spirit inwardly and outwardly of the Word of God like the ark overlaid with purest gold so he's relating Mary she's she's the true ark of the covenant and um, Jesus who is sinless would not take flesh from someone who had sin so uh, that's why he refers to Mary as imperishable wood and gold, pure gold, he, like, like the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Hippolytus also said that his, that is Jesus' tabernacle, the Blessed Virgin Mary, was exempt from putridity and corruption. So, actually, that's that's an argument for her assumption into heaven body and soul but also that she was unstained with sin okay. St. Ambrose called Mary a virgin not only undefiled but a virgin whom grace had made inviolate free of every stain of sin now we have these these statements but what we don't have here is a statement that this is from Mary's conception. I mean, it, this was part of the teaching of the church, part of the understanding of the church in the beginning, but we don't have an explicit reference to her conception. Another another author here, well, I'll tell you what, we're coming up on a break. Uh, I'll return to another author from the East when we return after a short break. Thank you. Want an example of a false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MATT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. this is Father Dwight Campbell we're back for the final segment of today's Marian Hour and uh, we're talking about the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary the feast day we celebrated yesterday and I was talking about 
in in the previous segment how um, we have early witnesses saints spiritual writers who speak of mary's purity but uh, you know the terminology was not clear then and and it wasn't clear from the statements we have that Mary was preserved from original sin from conception. Now I quoted St. Ambrose. You know, he died in 390, calls Mary a virgin, not only undefiled, but a virgin whom grace had made inviolate, free of every stain of sin. Well, when did that grace make her inviolate? He, he, he leaves that open. He's not, he doesn't say at her conception, but it's likely he understood this. In the East, we have a fellow named Origen, and um, he and other writers from the East, they use terms like this in reference to Mary. Panagia. Now, pan means all. Pan America, okay. Panhagia, or panagia, means all holy one. That's still a term used in reference to Mary in the liturgy, okay. Um, Another term is tota pulchra, the all-beautiful one. Uh, that's used in regard to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And there's an excellent book, I'll, I'll reference it here, by uh, Father Christian Kappes, K-A-P-P-E-S. It's published by the Academy of the Immaculate, and it's called The Immaculate Conception. And he points out that uh, some of the writers in the East, they used a term, you could say, synonymous with the Immaculate Conception very early on. It was called, they called Mary pre-purified. Pre-purified, okay. And <coughs> uh, St. Gregory Nazianzen who died in 390, he was the first to use this title. And um, uh, that Mary was pre-purified. And St. Ephraim of Syria says that, calls Mary all pure, all immaculate, all stainless, all undefiled, all incorrupt, all inviolate, the immaculate robe of him who clothes himself with light as a garment, okay, in reference to Jesus, okay. Um, so, Mary gave Jesus his humanity. Uh, I won't go into some of the other testimonies here, but I'll, I want to point out a theological problem that was in the West, especially in regard to Mary and her Immaculate Conception. Um, by the time, by the, the 12th century, the term Immaculate Conception was being used, and St. Thomas Aquinas argued against it, the great common doctor of the Church, and because he did, St. Bernard, pardon me, St. Bernard argued against it, and St. Thomas followed him. And the problem they had with him, with saying Mary was conceived without sin, was that Everyone has to be redeemed. So, if you're saying Mary was conceived without sin, well, aren't you saying that she wasn't redeemed? See, they didn't have a problem, Thomas Aquinas, St. Bernard, saying that Mary was 
you know, clean from all sin after her conception. But um, the idea of, of her being conceived without sin was a theological problem. And actually, in the ninth century, a feast, or actually it was, uh, it, yeah, in the ninth century, around 800, um, a feast that was passed from Naples, it came west, the Feast of the Conception of Mary, the Conception by St. Anne. But they, they weren't using that terminology, Immaculate Conception, back then. And, um, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, I mentioned, he, he had a problem with this, saying, okay, well, if Mary's conceived without sin, how is she redeemed by Jesus Christ? Well, uh, people began to resolve this problem. One of them was a monk from Canterbury uh, named Aedmer. And he penned really the first treatise on the Immaculate Conception. And he said the Holy Spirit could not have been absent from Mary's conception. And he used the image of a chestnut, which, and I quote him here, is conceived, nourished, and formed beneath its burr, and yet protected from being pricked by it. So a burr, you have, you know, these prickly things on the outside, but inside it's protected. And he used that as an image of Mary. Um, you know, original sin never harmed her. She remained pure. And he had a famous saying, and it's, it's in Latin. I'll say it in Latin. It's um, potuit decuit ergo fecit, which means God was able to keep Mary free from sin. That's potuit. He could do it. Dequit means it was fitting that God preserve Mary free from sin. Ergo, fetch it. Therefore, God did it. When I preach this on the Immaculate Conception Feast, I'll just say this to I'll, I'll, Angela. You can be my, my audience today, okay? If you had the opportunity, would you want your mother to be preserved from all sin? Yes, of course. Yes. Did you have the capability of doing that? No. No. Did God? Yes. Yes, and he did it. Yeah. Okay. That's basically the argument that he used. Well, um, but that still didn't overcome the real problem uh, with, you know, okay, Mary had to be redeemed. The, the brilliant insight came with, with the Scot. He was a Franciscan. He's a blessed now. John Duns Scotus. S-C-O-T-U-S. He died in 1308. And he said that Mary was not freed from original sin as we are. All of us are freed from original sin. That happens by baptism. But Mary was preserved from that sin. I say she was pre-redeemed. Now, God is outside of time. Jesus wouldn't redeem us until after she gave birth to him. However, that didn't prevent God from taking the grace that Jesus would merit on the cross and apply it to Mary to preserve her from sin. And that's what he did with Mary. So, Mary was preserved from all sin 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in view of the merits of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, those merits, Jesus merited the grace of our baptism, which takes away our original sin. That was applied to Mary by the Holy Spirit at, her, at the moment of her conception, so she never contracted original sin. And <clears throat> I'm just going to, um, in these last few minutes, I'm, I'm going to quote some scripture verses which Blessed Pius IX used in his definition of 1854 because there is scriptural evidence of Mary's Immaculate Conception. Now, Angela, do you remember the first reading for the Mass yesterday? Do you remember what it was? <laughs> oh, no, I don't. No. Uh, Genesis. Oh, yes, I remember now. Genesis no. 3.15. Yeah, right. With complete enmity. Right. right. It was about the Garden of Eden. Right. Adam blamed Eve. She said, the woman made me do it. Right, right. Thank you for the hint. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, he wasn't man. He, he didn't man up. He no. didn't man up. No, he blamed her. And he actually, he didn't prevent her from, from sinning. Uh, some saints say he should have. Anyway... Um, the lines we see from the Proto-Evangelium, the first announcement of the good news of a Savior, Genesis 3.15, immediately after the original sin, God speaks to the serpent, the devil, I will put enmities between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and hers, and she will crush your head. Now, actually, the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, is a third-person neuter. It will crush your head, which can be translated either he or she. Now, properly speaking, it's the seed of the... The woman is Mary in that verse, okay? Her seed is Jesus. Properly speaking, it's Jesus who crushes the head of the serpent because he dies on the cross. He defeats the kingdom of Satan. However, St. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, okay, translated the scriptures into Latin, still used today in the Tridentine Mass, okay, he translated that pronoun, she shall crush your head, relying on ancient sources. And it can be translated both ways. How can we say that the woman crushes the head of the serpent? Well, because Mary is in this union with Jesus from all eternity. And she cooperates with the plan of redemption and salvation by conceiving Jesus and at the foot of the cross. She is the cooperatrix, the co-redemptrix with Jesus in obtaining the grace of our salvation. And at the beginning, this is significant, because at the beginning of his apostolic constitution defining the Immaculate Conception, Pius IX says this, God ineffable, having foreseen from all eternity the lamentable wretchedness of the entire human race as a result of the sin of Adam, decreed by a plan hidden for centuries to complete this first work of his goodness, the incarnation through Mary. Okay, He says, from the beginning, before time began, from all eternity. The Eternal Father chose and prepared for his only begotten Son a mother in whom the Son of God would become incarnate. 
and from whom, in the fullness of time, he would be born into the world. Therefore, far above all the angels, all the saints, so wondrously did God endow her with an abundance of all heavenly gifts poured out on this mother, that she was ever absolutely free from all stain of sin and possessed the fullness of holy innocence, sanctity. To such a degree, one cannot even imagine anything greater and which outside of God no mind can succeed in comprehending fully. Okay, well, he's talking about the grace that Mary was given at her conception. But back to Genesis 3.15, how does this reveal Mary's immaculate conception? Okay, well, because the enmity, the total hatred between, between Satan and her seed, Jesus, is likened to Satan and the woman. So we glean from this that Satan never had a grip on either the woman's seed or the woman herself. He never had a grip on her, never had a hold on her. She was free from sin. And this is, um, this is what Pius XII is, is saying here in, the, in his, his opening lines of this, this, um, this constitution defining Mary's Immaculate Conception. And he goes on to say that the supreme reason for this privilege, it was wholly fitting that so wonderful a mother should be resplendent with sublime holiness. Now, there's an old saying that if you put water through a dirty pipe, the water becomes dirty, or a rusty pipe. So, the Son of God, it was fitting, actually, we give more glory to Jesus by saying Mary was preserved without sin, because God deserved this. This was fitting. Potuit dequit ergo fecit. God could do it. He, he it was fitting he'd do it that the mother of, of the son of God who had him in her womb for nine months and then gave birth to him after conceiving him okay, should be spotless from conception never tainted by original sin St. Gerard Mary Hopkins calls her in his poem uh, our nature's single solitary boast Okay, she's the one who we can boast about because she was never tainted with sin now another scripture verse that Pius XII quotes, the second one he quotes in his, his um, apostolic constitution is the gospel we heard yesterday. Full of grace. Yes. Mary is greeted, hail full of grace. And she's filled with grace from the moment of her conception. To a degree, again, I'll read the words of Pius the Ninth here, okay, that under God one cannot even imagine anything greater and outside of God, no mind can succeed in comprehending fully how holy Mary was. Only God can comprehend this. So this is why the angel greets her, hail full of grace. She was already filled with grace. Now that doesn't mean that Mary couldn't grow in grace. She could. She's a creature. Only God can't grow in grace. Mary could. And even the saints say that in preparation for the incarnation, God bestowed upon her more grace. But when the angel greets her, He's acknowledging her immaculate conception. Okay, so we have those those 
verses of scripture that implicitly reveal Mary's immaculate conception. And so, Father, we're done in our last two minutes. Are you going to talk about how heaven affirmed it? Yes, I'll talk about that. How okay. did I know that? Quickly, quickly, okay? Yes. Now, 1830, Mary appears to St. Catherine Labore in the convent on the Rue de Bac. She's a visitation sister. Uh, she's got her foot over the head of the serpent. She's got rays coming out of her fingers. Around this oval shape in which she appears are the words, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Okay. Wow. The other side of the medal, that's, this is the miraculous medal, okay? shows an M under a cross, two hearts under the M, Jesus' heart surrounded by thorns, Mary's heart pierced with a lance, okay, or, or a sword, okay? Um, so, <coughs> this was before the, the definition in 1830. Four years after the definition of the dogma, Mary appears again to a little girl, 14 years old, named Bernadette Subaru at Lourdes. And the priest, when, when Bernadette tells him, oh, this lady appeared to me, and she doesn't say it's the Virgin Mary, because she doesn't know. The priest says, ask her her name. So Bernadette does, and Mary responds, I am the Immaculate Conception, identifying that, that singular grace with her very being. And this is something that I'll mention one more saint here, Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Oh. He he was taken up by this this these words of Mary. You know, who are you, Mary? And he said these beautiful this beautiful idea. Mary is the created immaculate conception because she's an image of the uncreated immaculate conception, the Holy Spirit, who you could say was conceived eternally from the mutual love of the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from their mutual love. Mary is a living reflection of the Holy Spirit, an image of the Holy Spirit. I'll end there on this day following Mary's Immaculate Conception. And, and could we have you a blessing, Father? Yes, through the intercession of the sorrowful and immaculate heart of Mary, may Almighty God bless you and keep you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Another great show. Thank you, Father.